But we turn uh, from the Old Testament into the New Testament, and we turn for the third and final time to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. Uh, and we conclude tonight, God willing, our mini-series uh, entitled God's Will for Your Life. God's Will for Your Life. And here in these verses, we discover that God's will for the Thessalonians then, God's will for us now, uh, God's will for every Christian, no matter where or when he may live, is that he rejoices always, prays without ceasing, and gives thanks in everything. And we've been working our way through those verses, haven't we? And tonight we're going to focus on what Paul has to say in verse 18. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Thank you. It's amazing the extent to which we can bless another human being simply by saying, thank you. No doubt we ourselves have had our spirits lifted by someone we love and respect, saying a heartfelt thank you to us. And we trust that when many of us, if not all of us, gathered on our doorsteps in the early stages of the pandemic uh, to say thank you uh, to NHS staff and key workers for what they were doing in the, in the pandemic, we uh, hope that that was an encouragement and a motivation to them. Thank you. Those two words are some of the simplest in the English language, so much so that even a young child can say them. They may not always mean them, but they can say them. And yet they are some of the most powerful words we have at our disposal. And as Paul makes abundantly clear here, they are words which God would have to be prominent in the believer's vocabulary. Thank you. He would have us, his people, to be marked, amongst other things, by what one writer calls an attitude of gratitude. I thought that sounded a little bit corny when I read it, but it is helpful to remember, isn't it? An attitude of gratitude. Paul exhorts the Christians at Ephesus, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So Paul says to the Ephesians, don't use your tongue uh, for filthy language uh, and rude jokes, but use your tongue to express thanksgiving. And interestingly, uh, in Ephesians 5 there, uh, Paul regards thanksgiving as, quote, fitting or proper for saints. So we're not talking here about something which is desirable, in the disciples of Jesus. No, says Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, this is God's explicit will for us. It is his command to us. And Paul says in Ephesians, anything else is for the child of God out of place, improper, unbecoming, frankly, disgraceful. A Christian who is not thankful is for Paul a contradiction in terms. Now, here in 1 Thessalonians 5, in verse 23, this is important, Paul links everything we've been considering over the last few weeks with what he calls our sanctification. 
He says in verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul speaks in verse 23 about our sanctification. And it's important to recognize that verse 23 hasn't just landed on the page out of nowhere. It's not sort of uh, unattached to what has come before. You know, Paul has been dealing with one thing, and then all of a sudden he thinks, oh yes, before I finish, I better put in about sanctification. No, what he says about sanctification in verse 23 and then in verse 24 is inextricably linked with what comes before it, the verses we've been thinking about. In fact, verses 23 and 24 is the climax or the conclusion of the argument Paul has been advancing up until then. Paul has been talking in these preceding verses, including verses 16 to 18, about our sanctification. He says, this, in a sense, is sanctification. Rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in everything. Earlier than that, being at peace amongst yourselves, warning those who are unruly, comforting the faint-hearted, upholding the weak, being patient with all, always pursuing what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Paul says, this is sanctification. Then in verse 23, he says, and I pray that God would do it in you. And then he declares in verse 24, I have no doubt God will do it in you. See the structure. This is sanctification. I pray that God will do this work in you. I am absolutely convinced he will do this work in you because he's a faithful God and he's begun the work and he will not leave it unfinished. Now, by sanctification here, he means, quite simply, this work of transformation, which the Spirit of God performs in the life of a person he has regenerated. So the Holy Spirit gives a child or an adult new birth, and then he sets to work changing that person from the inside out, making them a new person at heart, moulding them into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what the old uh, phrase was, God takes us as we are, but he never leaves us as we are. That's sanctification. He transforms those he has saved in terms, in terms of their character. He transforms them into someone they most definitely were not before he got hold of them, and into someone they never could be without him. That's sanctification, transforming an individual into someone they were not before he got hold of them and never could be without him. That's sanctification, the work of the Spirit in the life of a newborn Christian. What does that look like in practice? Well, as I've just said, Paul shows us that in verses 12 to 22. This is sanctification. This is what the Spirit makes somebody he indwells, somebody who... Uh, verse 12, is submissive to authority. In verse 13, uh, someone who pursues peace. Verse 14, someone who warns the unruly, comforts the faint-hearted, upholds the weak, is patient with all, and so on and so on, including verses 16 to 18. This is what the Spirit makes the sinner he indwells. Someone who rejoices always, prays without ceasing, and gives thanks in everything. 
Now, it's important to make that point that this is the work of sanctification, because otherwise we could leave at the end of the three weeks uh, I've been here feeling, well, I've got to do all this, I've got to rejoice always, and I've got to pray without ceasing, and I've got to give thanks in everything, and it's all on me, and I've got to strive hard, and I've got to go home, and I've got to give it a good, jolly good start, and then I, I begin to fail, and then I lose heart, and we're reminded you know, that actually this is a work that God is doing in you, and that God will do in you. If you are a child of his, he will transform you. It's a lifelong process. It won't be complete until you see Christ one way or the other. But it's a work that God does in you. He makes you somebody who will rejoice always. He makes you, over time, somebody who will pray without ceasing. He makes you somebody who in everything will give thanks. Paul says in verse 24, He who calls you is faithful, he will do it. So it's not all on you. It's not something you have to summon up from yourself. It's the work the Spirit sets about and is doing in you. And part of perhaps the, what his work and how he promotes it is through drawing your attention uh, as, through a series like this to these verses. Yes, we have our part to play. We work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But we remember it is God who is working in us to want this and empowering us to do it. So yes, we have to play our part. It's not let go and let God. It happens when I sleep. But don't panic. Rest in the knowledge, or work rather would be better. Work in the knowledge that it is God working and God will secure it. So Paul says, this is all sanctification that I'm talking about here. And so Paul is saying that one of the things then the Spirit produces as he transforms us is an attitude of gratitude. He makes regenerated people thankful people. Now remember what I said before? Sanctification is making us what we were not before and what we could never be without him. So in other words, Paul is saying that before the Spirit gets to work in the heart of a Christian, he is not thankful. He is not a grateful person. But now, thanks to the Spirit's work, he is. Now that, upon first hearing, is an astonishing claim. Paul is claiming that believers are thankful people, and believers are not thankful people. He's saying that only those who have been born again by the power of God's Spirit, and have been given a new nature by him, can ever really be marked by an attitude of gratitude. He's saying that thankfulness is something seen exclusively in the Christian. Now, what do you make of that? Because doesn't that seem to contradict what we've seen with our own eyes and heard with our own ears? Can't we all think of people we know who have no interest in the Lord Jesus Christ whatsoever, and yet we can say without a shadow of a doubt that they have an attitude of gratitude? We know them to be people who are quick to say, thank you. Now, admittedly, there is a great deal of ingratitude in evidence in our world today. And I think two things are contributing to that. To begin with, there is amongst people a growing sense of entitlement, isn't there? So we hear an awful lot about rights. 
when I taught for a couple of years before I uh, went into the ministry um, in Triorchy Comprehensive School, perhaps I shouldn't have said that, I'll get back on there now. Um, in Triorchy Comprehensive School, in every classroom, including mine, there was a poster with rights and responsibilities. And I think the rights section was at least twice the length of the responsibilities section. But rights, what you have a right to expect. And we hear a lot about that, don't we? And another phrase, I don't know if you picked up on it, that we hear a lot today is about giving something they deserve. So hearing a, a doctor was being interviewed on the, the news recently, uh, a doctor who works on a long COVID ward somewhere in the UK. And they were saying about um, being under-resourced, that the point was we need the government to recognise long COVID as a distinct condition, so we'll have specific funding to employ staff and whatever to deal with patients who've got long COVID. And the doctor said, at the moment, because we haven't got that funding, we're not able to give the patients the treatment they deserve. Or we hear about, um, well, during the pandemic, children didn't receive the education they deserve. And there's a lot about, we deserve this. I deserve to have this. I have a right to this. I am entitled to it. And so why would we say thank you for it? If we believe, well, I'm entitled to this. You're only giving me what I should have anyway. Why should I say thank you for it? And so this sense of entitlement, and I'm entitled to this, um, pushes gratitude out of the way. And then, of course, gratitude is strangled by greed. Because when we're given something, it's never enough, is it? And instead of giving thanks for what has been received, we immediately complain that what we've got is not what we need, and we demand more. So we do see and hear expressions of ingratitude all around us every day. And we probably see these things in ourselves too. But it's not fair to say that all we ever see in the hearts of unbelievers is ingratitude. So is Paul wide of the mark then when he states in this passage that the giving of thanks is, to quote one writer, the fruit of grace? In other words, it's something produced only by the grace of God in us. Well, Paul is not wrong, and I'll tell you why. Because Paul has a specific kind of gratitude in mind here. And it is true to say that this kind of gratitude is supernatural. It's not something we have by nature. And it's only in a child of God produced by the Spirit of God. And there are two things which distinguish this kind of gratitude from the gratitude an unbeliever may readily display. Firstly, the gratitude to which Paul is referring here is gratitude not to our fellow human beings, although that is right and proper, but gratitude to God. And that's one of the big differences, isn't it? Even the most thankful of unbelievers limits his thankfulness to other men and women. He never thanks God for what he has. In Romans chapter 1, a famous uh, section of that uh, famous letter. Paul uh, says something quite sobering. He says, the wrath of God is revealed. The wrath, the righteous anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. You see Paul's point. Paul says, man is aware of God. God has revealed himself to human beings in their conscience and in creation. But they refuse, refuse, says Paul, to acknowledge God as the creator and the provider of all things. They refuse, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness because it is what we would call today an inconvenient truth. Because once we acknowledge the truth that God is the creator and the provider of all things, then all of a sudden he has a claim upon us and we are to respond to him and we don't want to do that. But Paul says that's the unregenerate man he's outlining in Romans 1. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, he's Welsh or English or whatever, he says this is what we all are by nature. We are people who refuse to acknowledge God and to be thankful. And in 2 Timothy 3, Paul says, know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. So the last days, when Christ returns to heaven, it already happened, of course, Christ returns to heaven, uh, and the intervening period between his return to heaven and his second coming, Paul says, this is what life is going to be like on the earth. And he says, men will be, amongst other things, unthankful. That'll be one of their distinguishing features, unthankful. And the unbeliever, and this was us, before the Spirit of God came in to dwell. The unbeliever refuses to acknowledge that he has what he has, life, health, food, shelter, family, employment, security, all these things by the grace of God and through the kindness of God. Yes, these things are perhaps provided to a certain degree by human beings, but they are the instruments of God's kindness and grace. But man will not acknowledge it. And we hear um, a lot these days, don't we, of um, when somebody's had an escape from something and it's on the television, you know, somebody's had an escape. Oh, I was lucky. No concept of the kindness of God. And in that sense, the unbeliever tramples on the goodness of God. And what an amazingly gracious God he is that he gives these gifts to those who trample on his goodness and refuse to acknowledge what he has done. Now, as a sinner, I want people to acknowledge what I've done for them. So if I'm driving and I give way to another car, you know, coming that way, and I, it was really my right of way, but, you know, I decided today I'm going to be kind and let them through, and then they don't say thank you, then I get all uptight about it. They should have said thank you. That's the sin in me, wanting to be acknowledged and thanked in that way. Um, but how remarkable God is, that in a far greater way, every day he's giving right of way to other motorists, and they never thank him. He is good to all he has made, says Psalm 145, and yet the unbeliever does not return thanks. And in God's grace, he still gives, but it is an extremely serious Offense. Paul makes that clear in Romans 1. The wrath of God is revealed against men for this. 
But the Holy Spirit, here's the difference, the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of the Christian to see, to understand that, as James puts it, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. So this gratitude is not in the heart of the unbeliever. He does not acknowledge that he is the recipient of God's kindness. But the Spirit opens our eyes to see that. And so then in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul is actively calling on the Thessalonians, and by extension every Christian, to purposefully and consciously give thanks to God for the benefits with which he daily loads us. And he does that on a number of occasions in his letters. He urges the Colossians to give thanks to God the Father through him, that is Jesus. He exhorts the Ephesians to give thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you think about it, we have a staggering number of things for which to thank God. Absolutely everything that is good and edifying and refreshing and that blesses and helps and prospers us. Absolutely everything comes to us from God. That's why hell is such an awful place. Because there God does not give these gifts that even the unbeliever enjoys in this life. There he does not give these gifts that bless and edify and refresh. Rather, he simply gives what is thoroughly deserved, that righteous wrath that we read about in Romans 1. But we are the recipients of his common grace, aren't we, as Christians? That is to say, we enjoy those things which he gives to all people indiscriminately, irrespective of whether they have faith in Jesus, food and shelter and so on, those material blessings. But friends, we are also the recipients of his special grace. As it were, God has opened an extra cupboard for us in which he has particular exclusive gifts reserved for those who believe on his Son. And we have those spiritual blessings which God has lavished upon us, incredibly expensive blessings that he has bought for us with his own blood. Just think what God has done for us. He has pardoned our sins. We're too familiar with these, aren't we? But this is mind-blowing. A holy God has pardoned our sins. He's given us the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ tonight so that we are flawless before him. And we are declared utterly acceptable. He's adopted us into his family so that he's committed to us now. He is committed to take care of us. Committed to help us. He's given us continual access to him in prayer. We can come continually, as we were thinking last night, before the creator of all things with our prayers. He supplies our every need. He preserves us from the evil one. 
And one day he will bring us into the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell with him and even reign with him forever. Well, you've got to say with top lady, how vast the benefits divine which we in Christ possess. God has given us so much, hasn't he? And he continues to pour his blessing out upon us. He is a wonderfully generous God, a warm-hearted and open-handed Father. And how can we not? It is scandalous, really, isn't it? If we do not then give thanks to him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet the fact that Paul exhorts us to give thanks to God suggests that it's not something we always do as we ought. And interestingly, in the psalm that we read earlier, Psalm 103, David has to exhort himself not to forget all of God's benefits. I wonder how conspicuous is thanksgiving in the prayers that we offer to God. When we ask at a meeting such as this, well, has anyone got anything they would like to uh, they would like us to, to pray for. I wonder, do we bring thanksgivings as quickly as we bring requests? Do we say, I'd like you to join me in thanking God for, as well as I'd like you to join me in asking God for? Someone has said this, the Christian is suspended between blessings received and blessings hoped for. I like that. The Christian is suspended between blessings received and blessings hoped for. In other words, whenever we come to pray, and here we are tonight, we can look back on blessings we've received, and we're looking ahead to things we pray we will yet receive. So we always have cause for thanks. And our, in our prayers, we should be looking both ways, back to what God has done, forward to what we plead with him yet to do. Why is it that perhaps we're sluggish in giving thanks to the Lord for his mercies, well, I think there are a number of factors which can contribute to this, and we can gu must guard ourselves against them. Firstly, is it not alarmingly possible for us to grow so accustomed to what God has done for us, and still does for us, that we take it for granted? That we can hear things like, God has pardoned our sins. God has given us the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can hear these things and not find ourselves stirred by them so that we no longer see this as anything extraordinary. Secondly, we can become so enthralled with the gifts, can't we, that we take our eyes off the giver. Uh, my wife's uh, brother and sister-in-law got six children, um, and we generally go up, about 15 of us gathered uh, this last Christmas at... at uh, um, Naomi's parents' house up in Wiltshire, and all 15 of us there, adults and children and so on. Uh, and there's a lot of presents for these six children, because there's six of them, obviously, so that makes a number of people to get presents. And then Naomi's father is one of six children, and her, her um, six is a big number in that family. And her mother's one of six children, so there's plenty of aunts and uncles, so there are gifts galore for these children. And I can remember a couple of Christmases ago, there were all these presents in the living room, and they were sort of running from one to the other, pulling the wrapping paper off, and then on to the next one, and their mother had to say to them, calm down, you don't even know who's given you these gifts. Because they were so caught up with the gifts and what it was that they didn't think about, well, who's given these? 
to whom can I be truly thankful for their kindness to me? And we can be like that with God's gifts, running after the gifts and so on and forgetting the giver. A Chinese proverb says, when you drink from the stream, remember the spring. And thirdly, we can ourselves, can't we, become greedy so that we're always after more. And I think it's good to do what David does in Psalm 103, which is why I had us to read that. Because David makes a point of calling to mind all that God has given him and done for him. He deliberately counts his blessings and names them one by one. He, if you like, stops to take stock of what he has. He takes time out to do an inventory of God's gifts to him. And that then stimulates this song of thanksgiving, which is Psalm 103. And we can be so busy just getting on with life that we don't take time to stop and think of how richly God has blessed us. And it may be an idea, perhaps, for me as much as anyone, to build into our daily routine time to just quietly think about all we have to be thankful to God for. As I said, it's a very serious offence for the unbeliever not to give thanks to God for what he has received. What about the believer who's been given immeasurably more? May we be found, as Paul puts it to the Colossians, abounding with thanksgiving. We give him, says Hebrews, the fruit of our lips, thanksgiving. But let's also give him our lives. Matthew Henry said, thanksgiving is good. Thanks living is better. And in gratitude for what he has done, let's give him our all in service. So that's the first thing which distinguishes this kind of gratitude that Paul has in mind in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 from the gratitude an unbeliever might display. It's gratitude to God. And then secondly, finally, briefly, the gratitude which Paul has in mind here is unique to the believer because it's a gratitude which is expressed in everything. Or as that can best be translated from the Greek, in every circumstance. Paul says to the Thessalonians, let us be grateful to God in adversity as well as prosperity. When the sea is rough as well as when it is calm. And when all is going well, but also in the midst of trials and tribulations. The believer cannot do that. The unbeliever, I'm sorry, cannot do that. The believer can and Paul says we must. And so how can we meaningfully, before I finish, give thanks to God when we're caught in the midst of a ferocious storm? Well, a number of things we can give thanks to God for. Just throw them out. We can give thanks to God for the fact that he is in control of the storm. <laughs> when the unbeliever's in the storm, all he can see is, I'm not in control, so nobody's in control. And that's the scary part. Whereas for us, we look at it and think, I'm not in control, but God is. So it's okay. He does all things well. So we can give thanks to God that he's in control of the storm. We can give thanks to God that he will not allow us to be overwhelmed by the storm. But rather, he will be our anchor in it. He will not allow the waters to overflow us or the fire to destroy us. We can give thanks to God for the fact that he will use the storm to bring about that greatest good in our lives, Christ-likeness. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. 
are being conformed to Jesus Christ. He loves us so much that he spares us nothing in order to pursue the greatest good we can have, which is to become like Jesus. We can thank God for the fact, can't we, that one day he will put an end to all the storms and we'll know only peace. They're things that the unbeliever cannot say. He cannot say in the storm, I know that someone's in control of this. I know this will not overwhelm me. I know this will turn out for my greater good. And I know that one day this will be over. But the Christian can. And so he has cause to be grateful to God in even the most testing of situations. Also, of course, our true treasure the most precious thing of all, our spiritual blessings in Christ. No storm touches them. We can say thanks for that. And it's always the case that however bad a situation might appear, if it were not for God's restraining hand, it would be infinitely worse. In our worst situations, they are restrained by God. Matthew Henry the great Bible commentator, was on one occasion robbed by highwaymen. And he wrote in his diary that day, let me be thankful, first, because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my purse, which was how men talked of their wallets in those days, although they took my purse, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took my all, it was not much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed, not I who did the robbing. In other words, he said, praise God that I've been given a new heart, that I wouldn't want to do a thing like that. What a refreshing and liberating way to look at a trial. Henry says, it wasn't pleasant, but I can see many things to thank the Lord for. The truth is, we are never without adequate fuel for thanksgiving. Roger Carswell says, whatever comes our way, let us not forget we have more than we deserve. We have been treated better than we deserve. We have lived longer than we deserve. And one day we're going to heaven. There is plenty for which to thank God. And so as I do finish, let me say perspective is key, isn't it? How we think about situations. Can I just say that a hot air balloonist was grounded by appalling weather at an international ballooning festival. And when he was asked if he was disappointed, he said, I would rather be on the ground wishing I was in the air than be in the air wishing I was on the ground. <laughs> what does that illustration teach us? Mindset matters. And when it comes to trials, how we view them will determine whether or not we can be grateful in the circumstance. May God be pleased to teach us to think correctly about trials. Uh, and it will, these are my closing words, a 19th century French novelist, and think on this one. He said, some people are always grumbling because roses have thorns. I am thankful that thorns have roses. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. He who called you 
is faithful. He will do it.